Nice, very nice. This is Hebrews 2020 and increment 80. En dokimasia. En en dokimasia. From Hebrews 3, 9 through 11. And I want to thank the many who have brought in new toys and items for the Treasures for Children. You've been very generous, and you still have time to do that, calling the church number and bringing it in at a scheduled time. And I really appreciate the generosity of all of our listeners with this, in this regard. Increment 80, let's take a couple moments of silent preparation. Father, we are prompt to hear today. We are swift to listen, slow to wrath, slow to react in anger against your word, swift to hear it with receptivity and with a good and honest heart that you provide through your grace. We pray that your word will find root in our hearts, that it will grow up, produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold to your glory, Father, for you are glorified when we bring forth much fruit. Amen. In previous studies, and in this study on Hebrews, We've identified our own time as an agona, A-G-O, long O, that is, N-A, which by definition is an arena of contention due to the clashing of two aeons, two ages, the outgoing evil age, as Galatians 1.4 puts it, and the incoming messianic age. In Romans 13, 11, and 12, it's the day that's dawning. To give further definition to our time today, I want to add, and for our Hebrew series, this phrase, or this word, dokimasia, dokimasia, D-O-K-I-M-A-S-I-A, in English transliteration, preceded by the word en, or in, means that we are in a dokimasia, Hebrews 3.9, it's a word that means proving ground. Now, I've said that the grammatical emendations are insignificant. There's some alterations, grammar and spelling, between Hebrews 3.7b through 11 and Septuagint, Psalm 94.7b through 11. However, though these grammatical and even spelling alterations are, put, are seemingly insignificant. The implications of them are astounding, potentially astounding at least. Hebrews 3.9 has dokimasia, which is the dative feminine singular common noun meaning testing or examination. Don't be put off by some of the in-depth or detailed 
exegesis of words here because I'm doing it all just to kind of make a simple point, a direct point. Whereas Septuagint 94.9 of the Psalms has edokimasan, E-D-O-K-I-M-A-S-A-N, which is the aorist active indicative of the verb dokimazo, meaning to prove or to test, usually with a view to approving. But it can also mean to challenge. But Hebrews 3.10 has another word. And in fact, Hebrews 3.9 has dokimasia. So it's a little bit different. And so there's a slight emendation. Now, Hebrews 3.10 has another word, a slight spelling change. It has E-I-P-O-N, which is the aorist active indicative first person singular form of lego, L-E-G-O, or lego, which means to say or to speak. Whereas the Septuagint, Psalm 94.10, has the spelling E-I-P-A, Ipa, Ipa, rather than Ipon. But it's also an aorist active indicative first person singular form of the verb Lego. So because of the ingenious aorist tense, A-O-R-I-S-T, from a word that means invisible, aorist, the ingenious nature of the aorist tense makes this so that it can either be I said in my wrath or I say in my wrath. God being the speaker. Now the slight distinctions of spelling are not really indicative of anything per se. We read in books like exegetical books like A.T. Robertson of a first heiress or a second heiress of something but the first and second aorist are virtually identical. The slight distinctions of spelling really don't indicate anything per se, but it should be considered that the aorist tense is not confined to any time period. The aorist isn't really concerned that much with time as the present tense, the future tense, the imperfect tense, which speaks of ongoing action in the past. And sometimes the aorist does indicate a past action, like the perfect tense indicates a past completed action with completed results that go on in the present, etc. But the aorist is not really confined to time. The disobedient of that desert generation under consideration will not enter into my rest, God says. The disobedient of this generation will not enter my rest. And so there is a present and a past flavor to this. So Hebrews 3.10 in the Nestle Allen 27th Edition has the demonstrative dative feminine pronoun taute, T A U T E, meaning 
this, this generation. That's what I basically titled our last message, Increment 79, in an eschatological editorial. This generation. The Septuagint of Psalm 94.10 has ekene, E-K-E-I-N-E, ekene or ekene, demonstrative dative feminine singular meaning that. So he's speaking of that generation in Psalm 94, the Exodus generation, but there's the implication that in Hebrews 3.9, he is speaking, and 10, he is speaking to this generation, which is the generation into which the Hebrew homily is being spoken. But I'm going to show you that that could also have a direct application to our generation and to the divine displeasure against unbelief or lack of trusting in God's promises. So my question is this, does the 40 years, and that's what this, what's indicated here, the 40 years indicated by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 94.9, does that correspond to a 40-year period near the end of which Hebrews was written? That being 30 to 70 A.D., a most critical and vital segment of history and prophecy for that matter. So does the 40 years indicated by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 94.9 correspond in some way to the 40-year period near the end of which Hebrews itself was written, that being 30 to 70 A.D., roughly? If so... This signifies an important interpretive move. Now, we've already kind of went over that before. I just wanted to reiterate it because I'm doing a study of Hebrews, and it's important to interpret it properly. So consider the ingenious aorist tense again. There is little difference in meaning between the so-called first and second aorist tense. In fact, basically they're identical. But the aorist does not concern itself so much with time as do the present, the imperfect, the perfect, or the future tenses. On top of this, though, and please note this in your mind at least, there are differences of emphasis within the action of the aorist tense. In fact, there are different kinds of aorist even though the aorist tense is basically a timeless tense in one sense. There is the ingressive aorist, also known as inceptive. And that emphasizes the beginning of an action without giving a specific time or time duration. There's the constative, C-O-N-S-T-A-T-I-V, also known as the historical aorist, which reveals an action that takes place or took place either over an undisclosed or a disclosed duration. 
Then there is the culminative, C-U-L-M-I-N-A-T-I-V-E, or otherwise known as effective aorist, which emphasizes the completion of an action. So the aorist is versatile in the sense that it can emphasize the beginning of an action, the overall action, or the end of an action, the culmination of an action. But there's also an aspect to the aorist. There are different aspects to the aorist, within the aorist tense. There may be the aspect or the suggestion of past or present or future or even the suggestion of the imperfect which is ongoing action in the past or the perfect which is a suggestion of a completed action in the past with ongoing results in the present. All of these can be suggested as aspects of an aorist in a given place. Consequently, though I would not insist on it, the PT may well have been making a slight emendation of the spelling of the aorist of Lego to make a subtle parallel to perhaps suggest a subtle parallel between the 40 years of the desert generation and the 40 years at the end of which the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews found themselves. In other words, they may have well been on the cusp and verge of the destruction of Jerusalem in the late 60s AD. I'm not saying this with, and shutting the door on other possibilities. I'm just saying this in the name of healthy speculation. Now, in Hebrews 3.11, in the epistle to the Hebrews, God says, I swore a solemn oath it's an aorist, active, first-person singular form of the verb omnuo, for swearing an oath. O-M-N-U, long O. You'll see all this in print. As also, he swears an oath in Hebrews 3.18, twice, 6.16, and 7.21. God swore an a solemn oath that the disobedient, that is, the faithless, would not enter into his rest. Rest is the Greek word katapausis, K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-S. You'll see it in print. It's a key word in this section found in Hebrews 3.11, 3.18, 4.1, 4, 4.3, 4.5, 4.10, and 4.11. So it's a catchword for this whole section. It means a place of rest, but it has various nuances of meaning. Cessation from work is one of the strongest nuances. Freedom from conflict, on the other hand, and hence meaning to live in peace and to live peacefully. It also indicates a place of spiritual fulfillment as provided by God for his people. Katapausis. 
The emphasis in katapausis for Hebrews seems to fall most heavily on cessation from activity, a kind of blessed cessation after accomplishment of tasks, for example, or from works, a cessation from works. Joseph Thayer's lexicon is helpful, giving the metaphorical meaning of the word katapausis, quote, as, quote, the heavenly blessedness in which God dwells and of which he has promised to make persevering believers in Christ partakers after the toils and trials of life on earth are ended. Adding, Thayer does, that the expression is used in Hebrews, and as it's used in Hebrews, quote, denotes the fixed and tranquil abode promised to the Israelites in the land of promise. Now, there's at least one commentator, and I only took a flashing glance at his commentary, to be honest with you, who denies that the author is making a parallel between the 40 years of the desert generation and the 40 years between the crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem. But I really don't see why he just sloughs that off. Perhaps I'm not being fair to him and should study further. But Jesus said this, an evil, the word is ponera, ponera, P-O-N-E-R-A, an evil, ponera, same word used in Hebrews 3.12, where we're headed soon. Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. And no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, Jonah 117, LXX 2.1 of Jonah, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, Matthew 12, 39 to 40. The sign of the Son of Man is his resurrection from the dead following his crucifixion, death, and burial. It is his emergence from the death, from the heart, rather, of the earth. His emergence from the heart of the earth, which is similar to Jonah's being vomited out of the belly of the sea creature. And what did Jonah do after landing on the beach? He preached the word of God. In fact, history, if it's correct on this, shows that he built quite a community of mature believers in the word. Kind of like Jesus building his church, but we'll deal with that another time. Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 39 to 40 as well as in Matthew 23, 35 to 36. In fact, there's a strand throughout all of Matthew as an indictment of the generation into which he was speaking. Like the generation of wanderers in no man's land who refused to listen to Moses, the generation who refused to listen to Jesus and who demanded a sign were departing from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief. Despite 
the consummate sign of the Son of Man. What applied to the 40-year Exodus generation in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, I think, applies in a different way to the 40-year generation between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem. The words of God against a generation ruled by unbelief should apply at all times and in all generations, not least our own, and for us, especially our own. Now is not the time to depart from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief. Now is not the time to know the right action to take, and yet demand more and more signs before we take that action. A further historical note now is important, and this kind of like takes up the strand from our last increment, 79, in which I dealt with a, an eschatological editorial, I called it. If you haven't heard that and you've skipped to this one, I recommend it. Here's a further historical note, which is a use of the theological functional specialty of history. The theory that the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews in the time period between the exaltation of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem, the theory that they were tempted to return to the practices of Judaism once enjoyed some status among scholars that I read way long ago in Hebrews. In other words, again, the theory was that the homilist was addressing a tendency for the Christians once enlightened, to go back into the practices and ceremonies of Judaism. Now, since then, the consensus of scholars has essentially rejected that, the, at least the ones I've read, the commentaries I've read. Now, I think there's some middle ground here, though, because though Hebrews does not debunk Judaism or its practices... It nevertheless compares those practices and sacrifices and ceremonies to the incomparable once and for all sacrifice of Christ. In that comparison and contrast, the sacrifice of Christ enjoyed such preeminence, enjoys such preeminence, that it becomes clear that the Levitical rites and sacrifices are not only no longer necessary for them, but redundant, and even sinfully redundant, if indeed those who were practicing them did so in a retreat from the insight of the finished work of Christ. In my four decades plus of being a minister of the gospel here in Pittsburgh and years before that, I've seen a lot of retreats. I've seen a lot of people retreating from insights they received. Sometimes under family pressure, sometimes under church pressure, sometimes under peer pressure, sometimes under satanic invisible pressure, sometimes under social pressure, sometimes even today under fear of being canceled or ghosted, or doxed on media. Sometimes pastors retreat from it for fear they'll lose their salaries, or their popularity 
as Christian celebrities. Some, perhaps, were in danger from retreating from the insight of the finished work of Christ. In fact, I think there's a basis for holding the conviction that the addressees of this homily may have been tempted to return to the Levitical rites and offering of sacrifices because, and now we'll employ history, at the time of the writing of Hebrews, Judaism as a religion enjoyed a formal, formal, in fact, contractual protection from the Roman Empire. Christianity was not afforded that formal protection at the time. When Jesus spoke of the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not be, and people want to make the abomination of desolation be something we should be looking for in our future because they are distorters of eschatology and revisers of true history, distorters of history. But when Jesus spoke of the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not be, in Mark 13 and in Matthew 24, 15, he was speaking of an encroachment of the Roman legions with their idolatrous golden eagle standards in Judean territory. That, by formal agreement, was forbidden. So the armies of Rome, which were forbidden by contract and by agreement, to stand or be stationed in Judean territory, especially in proximity to Jerusalem, that was violated. So when the abomination, which is the eagle standards that gave deity to Nike, Nike or victory, that gave deity to the Roman Caesar and to the city of Rome itself, the eternal city, those emblems were an offense and an abomination and a detestable thing to the Jews at the time. And so they said, stay out of Jerusalem. Stay out of Judea. And the Romans, therefore, put up a contract and a formal agreement and said, we will, in fact, stay out of your region with our emblems that are detestable to you if your priests offer a sacrifice, not to Caesar, but for our Caesar, and keep doing that. As long as those, see, so when Jesus said, when the abomination of desolation, which is the emblems of Rome in the Roman legions and other armies under Rome's control, was stationed where it could be seen from the walls of Jerusalem, it was stationed where it should not be by contract. That's not referring to something happening in our future, in something happening in the Middle East. It's something happened in Jerusalem and Judea in 66 to 70 A.D. Jesus warned about it. He said all these things are going to come to pass in this generation in Matthew 24, 34. Was he lying? That's what you're saying. If you try to put a twist on this and have the Antichrist be in our future, have the abomination that causes desolation be in our future, it's like you're saying Jesus was lying when he said it all happened in that generation. Well... 
He was speaking of an encroachment of the Roman legions with their golden eagle standards in Judean territory. That, by formal agreement, was, uh, was forbidden. So when you see them stationed to where they shouldn't be, by formal agreement, then you better know that some things are about to pop. Rome had agreed contractually to stay out of the environs and the city of Jerusalem with their emblems that glorified Caesar and Rome as divine if the priests would continue to offer sacrifices for Caesar in the temple at Jerusalem. That contract went on for some time. And so Judaism had a formal protection by Rome throughout the Roman Empire for some time. Christianity didn't get that. So you can see menacing missionaries coming in and saying, well, why don't you just submit to circumcision? Even though you're a Christian, you don't have to deny your faith. Go back and perform some of the ceremonial rituals, and you too will be afforded the formal protection of Rome. Very tempting, I can imagine. I can just see all kinds of Christians rationalizing today about that and saying, well, yeah. The, I call them the bobbleheads, the bobbleheads. Now, in Mark 13, 14, Jesus said, when you see, when you observe this happening, the abomination that causes devastation stationed where it should not be, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, there's certain yokels that have written books, some of them wildly popular, that said that this is applying to people in Jerusalem now. They've got a head for the hills when they see something called the abomination of desolation. Head and hide into the hills. Inserted in the middle of this warning and command is a parenthetical phrase which says, let the reader understand. And it was Mark actually putting a warning in there for the readers in his own generation that they were going to have to haul, as the Ninja Turtles say, haul shell into the mountains. Now you can understand this if you're a turtle, so I'm sure you're getting it. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Let the reader understand. This warning was most likely put there by Mark, who intended the readers of his gospel to pay attention to this warning. That's why it's in a parenthesis. Jesus didn't say it. Mark said it. And it was repeated by Matthew. Let the reader understand. And that means also, let the reader take heed. Don't harden your hearts. Listen to this. Again, that the abomination or the detestable thing that causes devastation, and what causes devastation? An idol? No, an army. An army causes devastation. The Roman legions were about to cause the devastation of Jerusalem in the most theologically significant destruction of the temple. that that abomination that causes devil, devastation was stationed where it ought not be signifies that the Roman legions had encroached on the area that by agreement they were not to go. Evidently, the Roman legions had done so because of the actions of Jewish revolutionaries against Rome, actions which Rome took to be in breach of that formal agreement. 
So the stationing, literally, of the abomination that causes desolation in a place where it should not be correlates with the eventual encirclement and siege of the city of Jerusalem by Rome and its allied armies. As noted by Jesus in Luke 19, Jesus specifically says what this means in John 19.43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade. And that means both dig a trench and build a wall. They will dig a trench to make the wall secure. They will put up a barricade around you. They will put a perimeter around your entire city, surround you, and hem you in on every side. Now, that's pretty darn clear. He says, this is what's going to happen. The abomination that causes devastation is the encircling action of the Roman legions putting a barricade and an entrenchment around your city, which is pretty much an indication that they're going to come down on you with fury. This military action by armies under Rome's authority would not end well for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jesus went on in his prophecy to say in Luke 19.44, and they will raise you, R-A-Z-E, to the ground and your children with you. They won't leave a stone upon a stone because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. This is another way of saying you neglected so great a salvation. The visitation, and this is an extremely important word in Luke because it's an inclusio. It basically takes up the whole message that Luke is teaching and giving to a, a person, a patron named Theophilus or the lover of God. The visitation of which Jesus speaks is the visitation from God. They didn't recognize with Jesus coming to them that it was the visitation of God from on high. In Luke 168, where Zechariah, the father of John the Immerser, prophesied while under the influence of the Holy Spirit, as it says in 167 of Luke, here's what he said, when the Holy Spirit got influence over him totally. In Luke 1, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he has visited us and has accomplished redemption. Redemption, Lutrosin there is the same word used in Hebrews 9.12, where Jesus obtained eternal redemption by his blood, through his blood. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's speaking as a prophet as if this has already occurred and the visitation happens with the birth of Jesus Christ and the days of his flesh that ended with his crucifixion, his being in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, his resurrection from the dead, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father where he lives even now, interceding for us in the power of an incorruptible life. So in Luke 168, Zechariah by the Holy Spirit used the aorist, middle, third person singular form of the ver verb episkeptomai in which the Lord God of Israel is the visitor. It comes from a word episcopos, where we get the word episcopal. It means bishop or overseer or visitor with aid or with help. And so 
Again, in 168, he uses the aorist, middle, third-person singular form of episkeptomai, in which the Lord God of Israel is the visitor to Israel. It corresponds to Jesus' word, episcopes, E-P-I-S-K-O-P, long E-S. You'll see it in print in Luke 19.44. So there is a visitation of God in 168 and 19.44. Israel did not recognize the time of the visitation of God because Jesus was God visiting them, and they did not, in by and large, there were exceptions, they did not accept him because he defied their expectations of what Messiah would be or what God would be when he comes into their midst. And so, one of the greatest catastrophes in history, and it ended up being a catastrophe ultimately. In fact, arguably the greatest catastrophe from a theological perspective was the failure of Israel, especially its leaders in Jerusalem, to recognize the time of their visitation by the Lord their God. Not recognizing the time of their visitation is like neglecting our salvation. The point I'm making here is that though there was a historical interval of protection of Judaism by Rome, the Christians didn't have that protection. So, up until the writing of Hebrews, the Jewish religion enjoyed exemption from persecution by Rome, while no such protections were afforded to Christians. Because of this, listen carefully, and again, I'm not making this a slam-dunk case, but it's, it's worth thinking about, and it is helpful. Because of this, it's not unreasonable to consider the perceived advantage to a Christian to not necessarily renounce his faith in Jesus, but to revert to the practices of Judaism so as not to be persecuted. You see, but the problem is they didn't, they didn't recognize that that is an apostasy of the, from the living God. In fact, Paul the Apostle actually accused certain Jewish Christian missionaries of preaching circumcision in order to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's like, if you preach circumcision, you get the protection of Rome. If you preach the cross of Christ, which eliminates the need for circumcision, you undo your protection from Rome, and you're vulnerable to persecution. Paul said, so what? I'm not here to please men, but to please God. If I were the servant, if I'm going to be a servant of Christ, I can't please men. You can't do both in Galatians 1.10. So Paul accused these missionaries of preaching circumcision in order to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ, for proclaiming Jesus once and for all sacrifice as being sufficient for all and rendering practices like circumcision as the means for becoming a true Jew as meaningless and empty. Some Christians were evidently on the verge of submitting to circumcision not to reject Christ overtly, but to show Rome that they were Jews. 
This is why Paul also accused the Jewish Christian missionaries in Galatia as intending merely to boast in their flesh. See Roman authorities? See Jewish leaders? These men have been circumcised. But who are they making a boast to? They're Roman overlords? To the leaders of the circumcision party in Jerusalem? Or to both? Paul has zero tolerance for such a practice and considered it a removal of the offense of the cross and a fall from grace. If the circumcision was performed to avoid the persecution of the cross of Christ, Paul said, I wish the preachers of it would be cut off altogether. Pretty crude metaphor for castration. Now, if we consider the appeasement of Rome and the temptation to return to the practices of Judaism, including the offering of animal sacrifices as being sinful apostasy, this, please notice this, because this is why people, exegetes, withdrew from some of the truths of the Bible because of fear that they'd be misunderstood as being anti-Semitic. And that's, that's the last thing in my mind or intention. This does not mean or demean those sacrifices per se. However, the return to them after receiving the insight and enlightenment of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ for the removal of sin, the return to those things in, after having received that insight would be a departure from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief and a willful continuity in sin, even in Hebrews 10.26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. If Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and for all, then there remains no more sacrifice for sin. So going back to do those is a sinful redundancy. It's an insult to the, listen carefully to this if you didn't, if this isn't potent enough for you, listen to this. It's an insult to the spirit of grace, a trampling underfoot of the Son of God, a re-crucifixion of the Son of God, and putting of Jesus to public shame all over again. That's what Hebrews 10, 28 and 29 says. That's what Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 says. The PT is as fiercely antagonistic to such a compromise as Paul was in Galatia. Now let me make a point, another point using history as a theological functional specialty and we'll close. One can understand in the light of the Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s and in the light of current trends of anti-Jewish sentiment some of which find their way right into our United States government among a new brand of anti-Semite left-wing radicals who would destroy our history, destroy our heritage, destroy our youth, and make them ashamed of being whatever they are. And so, in the light 
of anti-Jewish sentiment, which is gaining new popularity now and which has resulted in the Holocaust, the horrific Holocaust of the 20th century, I can understand the sensitivity of commentators regarding Judaism and the commentators' fearful reticence to appear in any way critical of Judaism. Why do I understand that fear? Because I have it. I am in no way intending any kind of anti-Jewish sentiment by showing the superiority of Israel's Messiah and his one-time sacrifice. So how one need not fear proclaiming the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ as that to which all those rites and sacrifices pointed for so many centuries. Such a proclamation reveals a proper respect for Judaism. In fact, as Paul said, we don't demolish Torah, we establish Torah. We give Judaism its proper place, as well as the Jewish people, who are always a people of God's favor. And destined for salvation in the new creation. Christians can boldly proclaim Christ and his finished work on the cross while still recognizing, as Jesus said, that salvation has come from the Jews in John 4.22. And that as Paul wrote, Israel is the root that bears us as Christ is the root that bears both Judaism and Christianity in Romans 11.18. Paul's benediction of peace to those who follow the rule of glorying only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the new creation. That benediction was accompanied by the pronouncement of mercy on the Israel of God. Galatians 6, 14 to 16. The Israel of God may well have been what the opposing preachers called themselves. We're the Israel of God, they said. Paul did not wish or envision final judgment on these men, though he expected them to be judged wrong. Instead, because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and its universal creative impact, the making new of all things and the new creation in Galatians 6.15, listen very carefully, he expected mercy for them too. The opponents. And why not? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ enacted the last judgment and released the mercy that God always intended to be for all of humanity in all of its times, including rebels in Psalm 68, 17, and 18. The real Israel of God will ultimately consist of all that is comprised of Christ Jesus, who himself is the God of Israel and the Sir of Israel, the single inclusive representative of Israel. Jesus himself is the real Israel of God, and Israel of God is made up of all who are comprised of him, which ultimately will be all of humanity, all the new heavens and the new earth. 
Now this helps us to make Rabbi Eliezer's point against Akiba in former increments that we looked at. If God intends to show mercy to all, including Paul's opponents, who were also opponents of God, of his Christ and of his cross, then how could a case be made for the exclusion of the opponents of Moses and God from the final eschatological rest? Let's call that Eliezer's point, if Eliezer indeed became a Christian. There is some similarity between Galatians and Hebrews. There's a whole other river we could row down but we won't, not yet anyways. A similarity between Galatians and Hebrews in this regard. The PT is ready to show that the wanderers in no man's land following the exodus from slavery in Egypt who complained and murmured and rebelled while longing to return to Egypt and, and slavery there were an example of, to a group who may have been entertaining a return to the slavery of the law, for the law had become enslaved and hijacked by sin. As Paul indicated in Romans and Galatians. Such an action would not please God, for it is not an act that can be said to be done piste, in faith, P-I-S-T-E-I. Not an act done by faith to retreat, to save yourself from persecution. Hebrews 11.3, 11.4, 11.5, 7, 8, 9, 11, 17, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31, where piste is used as acts of faith. It's not one to return. It's not one to revert. It's not one to go back on insights you've received from the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. Now, as we've seen, and I am closing with this, our false selves may in fact displease God. But it is not the false self, but the true and believing selves that will enter into God's eschatological rest and celebrate his eternal Sabbath, which is a festive party time like you can't even imagine or believe. What applied to the 40-year Exodus generation in the wilderness applied to the 40-year generation between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and applies also to us in the 21st century inasmuch as we are urged not to go back on insights we've received through the Holy Spirit by the word. An evil and infectiously evil heart of unbelief, far worse than a pandemic of a virus, is a pandemic of unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief rejects the living God by rejecting the promises he made about an eschatological universal restoration. All those promises are yes. All those promises are amen in Jesus Christ. And so I'll end today by saying yes and amen.